Thank you, Brian. Amen. That was, gosh, I love that song. That was awesome. Thank you. Hey, good morning, friends. Good morning, New Denver. I'm excited to be with you this morning. Thank you for your grace towards me to have you back. Norton, thank you for your lovely words. It is a joy to be with you this morning and just to share a little bit of what God has been doing on, in my heart, and maybe that'll connect. I hope it will. I've prayed that it will to where you are in your life and in your hearts this morning. My husband, David, who clearly is not as dedicated as I am because he couldn't make it to this early of a service and is coming to the next service, um, it's good to harass somebody who's not here because they can't fight back, right? <laughs> we celebrated 36 years of marriage on Tuesday. Um, yes, I was four when I got married. It's kind of crazy that I got married so young, but you know. <laughs> um, we have four kids. Now we have six. We have our OG four. Then we have two um, spouses. Though, so now we say we have six kids and we have two grandbabies. And that is like the best part of parenting so far. <laughs> All of the people who have grandbabies are like, it is. It is the best part. My dad said when we started having children that, the, that it was easy to be a grandparent because here's what you did. This was your job description. Find out what they want and give it to them. <laughs> so Dave and I have a lot adopted that philosophy, much to our daughter-in-law and our son's horror. We just find out what those kids need and we get it for them. When our daughter Annie, she's our number two, was a baby, um, Annie's always been super dialed in on what was going on around her. So even as a little person, she was. And I went to um, just get my hair done. And this will be a shock to you too. This is not my natural hair color. <laughs> and at that time, I had been, this was like in the uh, 90s. And so I was frosting it. Ladies, you'll remember that little frosting trend. Well, I decided just randomly when I was at the hair salon, I'm just going to go back to my natural hair color. I, you know, so this is me with my natural dark hair hair color holding Annie, who when I came home and saw me started shrieking in fear as soon as she saw, like, and then. And she started trying to look inside my mouth like this dark-haired woman has eaten my mother and what is happening and where is she? She it took her a long time to get used to the change from blonde immediately to this really dark hair. She was very upset by it. And I think if we're honest, we feel that sometimes about change too. <laughs> that there's something in us that kind of rises up to shriek and to cry when things change. Especially change we don't see coming. Especially change we might not want. But when new things, which is what change brings, new things in our lives happen, it's disorienting. And it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. Change though is inevitable. Have you ever heard this? The only thing that stays the same is change. Have you heard that? That is by the theologian Melissa Etheridge. Who knew? Um, and the, here's a good one from Mark Twain. The only person who likes change is a baby with a wet diaper. <laughs> the rest of us seem to resist it. Like when you show up at the grocery store and they've moved everything around, what is your response? Oh, good, this is so fun. Now the dairy section is the produce section. No, none of us do. We're like, why did they do this? I can't find anything. Or I'll go out of my way to get to the grocery store that I know the layout of versus the one that might be closer to where I am because I don't want that, un that unsettling feeling of things being different. New things can be really hard. New, actually, is in your name, though. New Denver. It's in your vision. New lives, 
New Denver, New World. It's part of the DNA of this church is to embrace that God is making all things new. And we're included in that, and then the things he does in and through us and around us are, in, are part of that too. But let's acknowledge that 2020, when my word of the year, do any of y'all do this too? I pick a scripture and a word, and that's my word for the year. 2020, hilariously, my word was new. The <laughs> joke was on me, right? Uh, we had no idea what 2020 would bring. And the reality, to, I like to call pre-COVID the before times, and now post-COVID is this new era that we're living in. None of us were excited for all this change that's come to our world, this new reality that we live in now. Do you have that awkward moment with people where you don't know, do I shake your hand? Do I hug you? Do I stay six feet away from you? I am no longer confident of my social abilities with new people? Do I just awkwardly pat you on the arm and try to bridge the distance somewhere in there? I don't know. We're in this new era, and it's not something we ask for. It's not something we want. New often happens like that. God does new things in our lives, and they're unexpected. Even in change that we do want, we can find challenge in the new things. So here's what I want you to think about this morning. What new in your life are you facing? What is it in your life right now where there is some change happening or there's something new that you're stepping into? And I want you to pull that up in your head. We're going to start with Jason and go around. No, we're really not. (laughs) I do want you to be thinking about it, though. It could be something to do with your work. Like in your job, you might have some new responsibilities or somebody else that you report to has now new responsibilities. There could be something that shifted in your work life and you're facing some change and challenge. You might be in a new season with your health. For me, that's what 2020 also brought, was a whole new problem health-wise that has completely changed everything about my life. My capacity is different. Um, I stepped away from a, from a job that I loved. Everything changed because of these health challenges that I didn't want, that I didn't see coming, that were a complete surprise. In the year I picked the word new, <laughs> maybe that was should help me, maybe financially you're facing something new in your finances. And that's a challenge in a season that you're in. In your family, there could be something new. With your friends, maybe it's simply your faith. That your faith that's been moving along a certain trajectory has hit a spot where you're wondering more, where doubts are creeping in, where you're drifting perhaps. Maybe you're in a new season in your faith that you're struggling to figure it out. Maybe you're here this morning because there's something new stirring in you, a wondering about who God is and what, what he is up to. And so you're here this morning because that new thing is rolling around in your head and your heart. Whatever it is for you specifically, I just want you to hold on to it as we talk here for the next 25 minutes or so about the new things that God brings in our lives, the challenges we face in that, and the response we can have to it. Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19, are scripture that God gave, words he gave through the prophet Isaiah to his people who were in exile. They, I'll just briefly tell you, their lives were super hard. They were in a really, really hard place, 
really hard. So bear that in mind as he says the things that he says. Verses 16 and 17, he reminds them of their faith, his faithfulness to them. He reminds them of their past. And then he says this in verses 18 through 19. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. God frames for us what he does, as we sang in that first song, in the midst of really, really hard circumstances, what can be happening around us, and his invitation to us to step into this truth. And here's this morning my prayer for all of us, that we would remember that the call to embrace the new things in our lives is actually a call to embrace God. We think more in terms of circumstances than on a deep soul spiritual level about what God is really doing. I just want to be super clear, especially if you're, the, the new thing in your life is painful and hard and discouraging and you're brokenhearted on it. God does not ask us to call hard things good. He certainly does not ask us to call evil things good. He asks us to call him good. So the call to embrace the new things that he's doing is not the call to embrace the new things. It's a call to embrace him. And that is what I want us to really hold on to and remember. These verses, he actually outlines for us four challenges that we can face when new things happen in in our life. So four things that we might struggle with. The first one is because embracing new things requires letting go of something else. If you've ever tried to exchange something with a toddler who does not want to let go of what they're holding on to, you can see the, 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 the struggle on their face. Like, I have to let go of this in order to take this from you, and it's hard for me to set this thing down and take what you're... We're the same way. We are the same way, that we may be holding on to things, and we can't embrace what's new in our life if we keep holding on. So here's what he tells us in verse 18. He says, forget the past. Do not dwell on those former things. He says to let them go. That word dwell in the Greek translation of the the Old Testament means to make a home or to abide. John, when Norton said that to you about you're a person who abides, oh, gosh, beautiful words. And what a high quality for your elders to have here is a man who abides because we're not to abide in the past, to dwell, to make a home in the things that happen. Our dwelling, our abiding is only in one place and that's in God himself. So he wants us to break us apart from the things that were so natural to hold on to, the nostalgia of the way things used to be. Do you think about that, about 2019? Like, oh gosh, you know, remember when we used to, you know, just go to a restaurant and we didn't consider whether someone around us might be sick or not. We were just oblivious and we just went. Or did you do that after 9-11? Remember when you could get on a plane with your shoes on your feet and not in your hand? (laughs) Remember the old, you know, the nostalgia of of the past and what God tells us is to let it go. 
In the Hebrew, the word means consider. He says, don't consider the former things. The, the meaning of it is to call to mind or to keep. So if you're one of those people that thinks about, this is me, by the way, that goes over things over and over and over again, he's telling us, you can't do that and move forward with me. You've got to let things go. You have to be able to release. Now, the funny thing to me about this is in verse 16, he reminds them of all the things from the past. You know, I am the God who did these things for him. He says, I made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty, mighty waters. He's reminding them of the past, right? And then he's like, forget the past. <laughs> so sometimes you read scripture and go, what are you saying? Like, which one is it? Do we remember the past or do we forget the past? Because in four verses, you flip-flopped on me and I don't know what's happening here. It is a little bewildering. I think what he's asking us to do is to remember him in the past. Look at my faithfulness. Your ancestors were facing a red sea of disaster and death, and I split the waters in two. I am a God who's faithful to you in the super hard things. Remember who I am. So don't get stuck in the past. Get stuck abiding in me, remembering who I am. If we don't release, we'll get stuck doing one of two things. And now think about your new thing, and also think which one of these two you might be more prone to. I've already outed myself on what I told you I'm more prone to, going over it, holding on to it, remembering it, replaying it. Are you somebody that in the shower you have um, what I think Paul was talking about in Corinthians when he said vain speculations? Do you think about conversations and think like, if only I'd said this, and then they would have said that? <laughs> like, that's getting stuck, right? I'm stuck in this thing that needs to be. So that's one of our tendencies. But the other tendency is the future part of the tendency. It's the fear look forward. Here's what Yogi Berra had to say about the future. He says, the future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> He's kind of done what God's doing in these verses together, putting these two things together and saying, none of it is what we think it is. None of it's what we think of it. Have you ever heard this acronym for fear? Future events appearing real. That when we look towards the future and we think about the what ifs, are you a what if? person thinks forward or a what if person that thinks backwards. Those are the two ways that we get stuck not releasing. Which are you prone to? He's asking us to let go. Knowing, as Augustine said, ourselves is part of knowing God. So know your own heart. Which are you most prone to? I don't project forward in the future with fear. I replay the past and get stuck in it. Which one is you're facing this new thing? So in 2020, after I got really sick and I realized my life is never going to be the same again, or it certainly looks like, barring a miracle, it won't be, what did I get stuck doing? Thinking back to what had been before and longing for that. What happens when we do that is we miss the beauty of the new that God's doing. First struggle, it's the struggle to release. The second challenge, struggle we face, is what God says. It's his work not ours. He says in verse 19, I am doing a new thing. If we're honest, we'll probably like to say he is doing a new thing that I gave him a lot of input and direction on, right? He's doing the new thing that I said I wanted him to do. I am doing a new thing reveals our own desire to control often and to not have these things that pop up in our life that we don't see coming, that we don't recognize happening. 
Um, do you and your house have any issues over who runs what we call the clicker or the remote control, <laughs> right? The word control is in the thing, right? <laughs> remote control. And there might be some issues about who's in charge of running the clicker or not running the clicker. In, um, I think it was when I was in college, our house in Dallas got broken into and um, they stole the Betamax. Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but they stole the, the there were TVs that were stolen and and but they didn't take any of the remote controls. And my dad would sit in his chair with the remote control and say, "I'm changing their channels. I'm changing their channels. We'd like to be in control, right? To direct towards God. Here's the new thing I'd like you to do in my life. This is the new thing I long for. But He tells us He is the one that is authoring the new things in our lives, not us." There's um, a quote that I love of a guy named James Brian Smith, and he's a pastor and theologian um, on uh, staff at Friends University in their soul care seminary department. This is something he says, and I didn't put it on a slide. If you want to get this, if you'll, I'm just going to throw it. If you email Norton, he can forward your email to me, and I'll give you the quote. I have said this in MRI tubes. I've said this in doctor's offices. I've said this as I'm driving down the road. I've said this as anxiety sweeps up and over me from nowhere that I have no idea. Here are the words that he wrote that have been and just a anchor for my heart in this. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble and neither am I. It reminds me I can embrace this God who is doing something in my life, even in hard places. It reminds me of who he is. It reminds me of his control and that he can be trusted. This God that is in control can be trusted. Now, the third challenge that we'll face, first one was releasing requires letting go. Second is that it's his work, not ours, which is troubling to our little controlling flesh hearts. The third one is that it's hard to see what he's doing. It's just hard to understand. Verse 19, he says to us, do you not perceive it? Do you not see it? And that's been true in my life. It might be true for you too, that sometimes you're like, what in the world is going on here? What are you up to? I can't see what it is that you're doing. Usually we don't get it. In a, in a lot of ways, I don't know that in this side uh, of heaven, we're ever going to understand the things that God's doing in our life, but we can know him, and knowing him is better than understanding. Let me also point out, if we could understand what God was doing, then that would mean we are equal to and praise him, we're not. As he tells us in Isaiah 55, he says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts, because my ways are higher than your thoughts, and my, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That God sits in a place that we do not. We don't understand what he's doing. It's hard for us to see what he's up to. Okay, this guy, y'all, is a man named Clifford Stahl, and um, he is an astronomer. It's not Clifford Still, the artist that we have a museum of his work here. This guy is Stoll, S-T-O-L-L. Have any of you all ever heard of him? Some of you... Okay, well, neither had I, but I found this. It looks, he looks like if Alfred Einstein and Bob Ross had a baby. But he doesn't he? <laughs> he does, right? I think he, okay, so uh, this is so hilarious. This is in 1995. 
he was, he, this quote was in Newsweek magazine about the internet. And here's what he had to say. This guy is brilliant, by the way, brilliant. Astronomer, brilliant. He said, the inter okay, first of all, the, the article was titled, The Internet, bah. <laughs> uh, here's what he said. I expect the value of the internet for communications in general isn't very high. I don't think it will ever replace face-to-face -face meetings and real rallies, things that get commitment involvement from people. Rather, it induces a very shallow involvement, and as such, I think it's grossly overpromoted, and there's a great deal of hyperbole surrounding it. I think it's grossly oversold, and within two or three years, people will shrug and say, oh yeah, it was a fad of the early 90s. <laughs> And oh yeah, it still exists, but hey, I've got a life to lead and work to do. <laughs> I don't have time to waste online. Or I'll collect my email, I'll read it. Why should I bother prowling the World Wide Web? Simply because there's so little of value there. Ten years later, in a 2006 TED Talk, still reflected on his failed predictions and said, if you really want to know about the future, don't ask a technologist, a scientist, a physicist. Don't ask somebody who's writing code. If you know, want to know what society is going to be like in 20 years, ask a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> he said, I think that's so funny that he, this guy so vastly uh, underestimated where we would be now in relationship to our computers and to um, into the internet. I completely didn't see it coming. I googled kind of to see what he was up to now. I googled, of course, on the internet, as it turns out, the WWW, and discovered that he said of all of his mistakes, he calls them howlers, flubs, and failures, this was his biggest, <laughs> was this grand prediction of the internet not amounting to anything. Uh, just like he was unable to see what was going to happen with the internet, we're not able to see what's going to happen in our lives, what God is doing. He's inviting us, though, to look differently and to not look at the circumstances, but to look at him. When, when we look towards him, it deepens our trust. When we look towards the circumstances, it unsettles us. Here's the way Bob Goff says it. The way we deal with uncertainty says a lot about whether Jesus is ahead of us leading or just behind us carrying our stuff. <laughs> That's kind of convicting, isn't it? Where, do, where are we looking? Are we looking forward with him leading us or have we just relegated God as to our assistant? Just our helper behind us. When David and I, in uh, 2014, for our anniversary, we went on our kind of dream trip to Italy. And one of the things, like, how, how many of y'all have been, has anybody been to the Sistine Chapel besides us? Yeah. Okay. So this is the room, the Vatican. It's overwhelming. The, I mean, seriously, like, the scope of it is crazy. And before you go in, they tell you before that you can't say anything. Everyone's to be very, very quiet. You could whisper. You're supposed to not, no one can, if you get a phone out, they will haul you right out of there. You, nobody can take pictures. You just are looking up. And the overwhelming um, scope of the art, the beauty of it, it's intoxicating, it's hard to step into. Here's what we had was this wonderful guide who sat us down on a bench before we went in. She opened up a map of the Sistine Chapel and she said, when you walk in, begin here. 
Follow the progression of the work as it goes around. Look for this and this spot. Be sure you don't miss this over here. Make sure you stop and see this. So David and I walked in. We knew exactly where to look. We didn't just walk in like trying to figure out what is. We knew that there was a, a message. There was a scope of the work that was painted all the way around, and we were able to take it in. What God's telling us is where to look. He's saying, look to me. He doesn't tell them to look at the wastelands. He says, do you not perceive me, what I am doing in this. Look towards me. That's why Hebrews 12, 2, the author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We see the horrific, beautiful mix of life in that, the joy and the sorrow together, the sorrow of the cross and the joy that was on the other side of him. And where does the author of Hebrews tell us to look? The author says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. When Peter steps out of the boat onto the water, what does he do? He notices the wind and the waves, and he starts to sink. Prior to that, his focus had been on Jesus, and his desire had been for Jesus. So he actually stepped out of a boat thinking he could walk on water. Walk on water because he was fixing his eyes where he was supposed to be looking on Jesus. In Colossians 3, um, Paul says to set our hearts and our minds on things above. In the message translation, when Eugene Peterson says that, what he says is don't stumble along with your eyes on the ground. Look up to Christ. That's where the action is. Where do we fix our attention? We fix it on God. We are naturally going to see everything that's happening around us or in us, but our our spirit-led hearts can be turned to the place where we're supposed to perceive it, to look towards him who is doing something new, looking at him. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10. Um, I love these verses. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And then he says this, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So when we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, he reveals to us deep hidden things. The spirit, Paul says further in Corinthians, who searches the deep things of God. So we might not have understanding about what is happening around us, but we can look to him who holds us in the midst of what's happening around us. Remember, it requires letting go, stepping into this new thing, so we can embrace him. It's his work not ours. And it's going to be hard for us to see, but we can see him. And the fourth struggle that we face is it might look impossible. It might look impossible. Streams don't usually flow out of deserts in the middle of wastelands. And that's not a place where you would say, are you looking for water? Go to the desert. There will be an abundance of it there. Does your life sometimes feel like a wasteland, like you've stepped into this really hard place? That's where God does his best work, in the hard places of our lives. Remember, we don't have to embrace the circumstances. He doesn't in these verses say, this exile that you're living in, 
This wasteland that you're in, this desert is a good thing. He says, I am the good thing. He says, look to me. I am the one who's doing something new. And it might look crazy impossible. That's who he is. That's who God is, is one who does unexpected, beautiful things in hard places. Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God does more more. He is the God who does more. You could stop right there. There could be a period. But then he says, then we could ask or imagine. So the, the, the feebleness of my strongest prayers don't come close to what God is up to. The vain speculation of my imagination doesn't subvert what God is up to. He is a God who creates life out of tombs who makes a way in deserts, who opens up streams in wastelands. That is who he is. So if your new thing that you're facing this morning feels like the hardest thing you've ever faced in your life, you're not without hope because your God who loves you and cherishes you is with you. And he's saying, look at me. I am doing something new, something beautiful here. Here's what N.T. Wright has to say about hope. He says, hope is imagining God's future into the present and acting accordingly. Hope is imagining God's future into the present and acting accordingly. So maybe a heartache that you're facing uh, that you can only imagine disaster up ahead, hope allows us to imagine grace instead of disaster. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm not good at that. I don't naturally think, oh, but what if this horrible thing happened and God could be doing something beautiful in it? I don't go there. That is what hope does for us. That is who God is. Is You know, if you ever thought about um, that in this future imagining that you might think about, imagining what beautiful thing God could be up to, the most incredible things that he could be doing, The faith that he builds in us allows us to do that. So we turn to him for the grace. Noah, in the midst of a storm, was able to trust him. Abraham turned to God with his lineage, his beloved son on an altar with a knife raised and found that grace was there for him. Joseph, falsely accused and in a prison cell without hope, found grace that was there for him, grace that enabled him to say when he saw his brothers who were responsible, you did it for evil, but God meant it for good. He was able to see that by looking towards the God that he loved in the darkest place in his life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego inside of a death chamber of fire trusting, believing God would make a way, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we'll still be okay. That is amazing faith at what God is doing. Ruth, shattered by loss and grief, a widow in a foreign la- with her widowed mother-in-law in a foreign land without hope for the future, was able to trust in this God she could see in her mother-in-law the hope that she could have. David, pursued by a murderer inside a cave, declared that he could taste and see the goodness of God, that his mouth would praise him at all times. When his life was upended by his own sin and failures, 
continued to turn towards God. Mary, unexpected pregnancy, shame, fear of the future, and then ultimately a heart shattered by the cross was able to meet her son as he came out of the tomb. Life comes out of death. Every one of those people, just like us, are a picture of Jesus himself, who went through horrific betrayal, the most unimaginable death, three days inside a grave to walk out alive, who the joy set before him endured the cross. The hard things that we face in our lives, the new thing that God's doing, the change that might be happening, that's a struggle for us to hold on to. It might look impossible for God to do something beautiful in this place, but he is the God who does this, who makes streams in the desert. The call to embrace Whatever it is that you brought to mind at the beginning of this message is a call to embrace God himself. Whatever the challenge of the new that's in your life, even the good challenge of the new is a call to embrace God himself. Our circumstances might feel hard or hopeless or just be change. But here's what he asks of us. He asks us to open our arms wide to set our hearts before him, to fix our eyes on him, to look up, to see him, and to cling to him, trusting and believing he is the God who makes a way. Do you not perceive it? This is who he is. This is who your God is. New Denver, new lives, new world. Father, we thank you that we do not have to rely on our own strength and ability to believe, but that you pour faith into our hearts. We thank you for the grace that enables us to endure our own hard places, our wastelands, our desert. We thank you for the joy of Jesus set before us. Would you turn our eyes and fix them on him, that we would be men and women who declare you are doing a new and beautiful thing, even in this desert or wasteland. And we can trust you. We can embrace you. We can look to you. We believe this because you loved us, that you gave your son for us, that your spirit lives within us, that we are the people who declare that Christ died, Christ was risen, and Christ will come again. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.